This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me today is a man who I've passed, streamed past in like a billion different screenings in the Sydney world. Um, like one of the like true nice guys of the media in Sydney. His name is David Michael Brown. He used to be the editor of Empire Magazine Australasia. Um, he freelances all over the place, including Empire, Rolling Stone Magazine. Um, and he's currently writing what I think is just going to be an absolute ripper for folks who do love Michael Mann and are obsessed with Michael Mann movies that don't yet have a DVD release in this country like The Keep. Um, it's called Wavelength, the film music of Tangerine Dream. Um, Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here, Blake. And Dave, actually, this is what's great about this show. Again, I spoke to Fiona Williams and Dave found out about the show um, via Fiona Williams' Facebook page. And yes. he wrote... Oh my God! I was working at Fangoria, Fangoria Weekend of oh sorry, Fangoria Weekend of Horrors. Is that right? Did I get that yeah, right? Yeah, a convention I used to put on all the time. And he's working there in New York City at a time where it got so snowed in that the military had to occupy New York City, but it didn't <laughs> it didn't close down enough for him in 1995 to go and watch a double feature of Heat and Nixon, probably the two longest movies that came out in that year. And he watched them back to back, like the maniac that he is, and he wanted to come and bring some stories to him in it. So I thought, what better time than right now? So thank you so much for being a part of the show again, Dave. Now let's just... All good. Let's, let's, before we... Before we um, uh, jump into the minute. Um, also, we might just kick off and jump straight into the minute, shall we? I think that's a good way to start. Um, we've just gone past a great ass minute. We really have. We've gone past the minute, a much sought after minute. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed it. I so thoroughly did. Um, we're now with Neil McCauley. We're with Christian Healis. We're with Michael Chirito. And they're just doing a great bit of awesome sleight of hand. And at this very minute of the movie, we don't know that that's what they're doing. But there's some really kind of lovely um, cinematic tricks here um, that you're going to see Man use. You're going to see some Wes Studi and Ted Bosco. Um, um, uh, sorry, Wes Studi plays Casals and Ted Levine plays Bosco, sort of hiding out um, on a rooftop, surveilling them with what they think is their next take. But... It's, uh, we're going to find out in other minutes that that's not the case. But let's check it out. Industrial LA, uh, near the docks, another one of the 107 locations in this movie. So we're going to watch this minute, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. San Clemente Road and Hermosa. Uh-huh. That's where we cut through the fence. That's the access. Right. The security systems around here are a joke. St. Vincent Thomas Bridge, that's escape route number one. Number two, 
Over here. Anaheim to the 110. Good. Okay? Yeah, it's done. Got it? Good. Let's go. They were looking back in this direction. A container facility for cottage theft. Too visible. Awesome. The 80th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. Dave, here we are. It's, it's awesome. I love the fact that this moment is kind of leading, as you said, to the next moment. It's kind of almost like when the, the tables are turned and, you, you know, the can of mouse chase kind of completely changes but at this point you think you know what you're watching you think you know you see the little snapshots of the police spying on the guys you know you think come on guys you're going to be better criminals than this you're meant to be knowing what you're doing yet you're in the middle of a big open space anyone can see you you think you're being invisible but you know exactly what you're doing and it's fantastic that it's just always wonderful watching the three. I mean, watching De Niro, Val Kilmer, and Sizemore in this, they're just wonderful throughout it. But just these little moments when you just kind of see them acting together, just kind of like looking all casual or trying to act casual, and De Niro just looking so serious all the time, it's just great. I love the beginning of the scene when you just, the camera just follows them and you've got the big open wide space. It just looks fantastic. It's, it's so funny that you say that. It's like after you scrutinize this. This minute is so rewarding on rewatch because you got to go into your head of like, I love when you sort of unpack a performance. You're like, okay, in this moment, they're pretending to be right on top of it and they're not. And I actually think it's, it's so funny because if you looked at it, if you just isolated this minute, as we do with all these episodes, you'd look at Val Kilmer's performance and you're like, what's, what's so good about Val Kilmer's performance in this minute? There's nothing. But then you go, oh no. It's Val Kilmer playing Chris Shahilis playing casual, and he's not good at that. Yeah. He's not good at playing casual. And, and then it makes so much more sense because Tom Sizemore is like really like eager to please. We've seen him in the other minutes, so you know, he wants yeah. to be a good soldier for Neil. And so in this minute, you see him like being like, he's laying it on thick. Like the performance, he's, he's trying so hard to sell this. He's like, this is the sell. <laughs> this is it. And so I watched this before. I was actually laughing before we even like began this conversation. I was watching, I was like, God, it's so, it makes so much sense. It just makes so much sense. It's such a really good piece of performing. And you're like, this is, these are three guys who not only were in tune with each other, but so in tune with their characters. They're just so, they just yeah. bounce off each other perfectly. And then Neil, of course, laying it on thick, like, De Niro's entire performance, I'm, I'm just going to, as as we're sort of chatting, I'm going to just sort of yeah, cycle yeah. back through the minute, but I don't think, I don't think De Niro makes gestures at any other time in no. the film as this character, as like, they're so animated. They're yeah, so, yeah. Look, look at that arm. Like he, I don't feel like he lifts his arm or moves in mm. such an animated with the finger it's 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 so uh, you know we're at so if you guys are queuing this up um, because there is a difficulty if you're either watching on like a PAL or NTSC DVD in the United States or Australia or if you're watching this on the definitive edition no this is the theatrical cut Blu-ray from Warner Brothers from about 
five or six years ago from the DVD of the same make. So if you're queuing it up exactly where we're at now, you're at one hour, 19 minutes, um, zero, zero when you kick off. But if you have a look, it's all the gestures that are happening in like the first 25 seconds of this minute, especially, you know, 16 seconds in. There's these huge gestures and I love it. It's just so, such a funny little tweak. Because if you watch De Niro's performance through the rest of the film, it's just all his face and it's all that kind of the eyes and the intensity. Yes. Uh, and there's some wonderful moments when he, you know, just throughout it, just of him like like towards the end when he's driving in the car and deciding, no, I'm safe, no, I'm safe, no, I'm not. And he just says so much in his eyes and there he's just waving his arms about like a banshee, <laughs> just making sure he's being seen. Yes. And yeah, it's brilliant. And you think, What's going on? They're overplaying it all, and no, no, no. And you're like, oh god, the cops are like, I, I'm really struggling to remember when I didn't know what you know. It's so funny when you're trying to go back and you're trying to be objective. And I think a couple of times on the podcast, I've spoken to people who aren't probably as like nutty about this movie as Dave and I are, um, or folks listening, and they kind of get to watch it fresh in this moment yeah. and go, oh, it's a really cool sleight of hand you know, when they turn the tables and it stops being cat and mouse and it's like, Oh God, okay. We're just racing towards each other. It's then, then, then it's a collision course, right? We know they're going to, we know they know about each other. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so great this minute because you're just like, Oh God, what a break these guys caught from the top of a container, like a kilometer <laughs> away. They caught such a break that, you know, they're pointing out everything that they're doing. Um, but yeah, it's, well, I also love though, the fact that, that when it continues and we the police, you know, Hannah and his guys turn up and they're, they're in that space looking around and just how completely clueless they look. All of them are just like, there's just something about the way they act as well. They, they literally just They, like they know like, it's wrong. They know it's wrong. I think the last I, line I, of the minute, the last line of the minute is like the perfect line to encapsulate this minute, which um, Wes Judy's character, Casals, goes, too obvious. Because someone's like a container facility, and he's like too obvious. It's the whole minute. It's like everything's too obvious. But I was watching. Sorry to go on a bit of a tangent. I was. I've started watching that Jack Reacher series, which a lot of folk might be ch- checking out on Prime Video. Because as we record it, it's only a couple of days since it sort of, it's sort of dropped. There's lots of reviews about it. Um, stars John Krasinski. Jack Ryan. Yeah, yes. oh, Jack Ryan. Sorry. I can say Jack Reacher, not Jack Reacher. I've got Chris McQuarrie on the brain. Um, but Jack Ryan series with uh, John Krasinski, mm. the Tom Clancy novels. And um, one of the things I was like, you watch in that is just the convenience of 2018 technology. You know, you, you've got a drone that can dial in on a car and instead of like having to avoid, you know, stay a few cars back or a few paces yeah. back or whatever it is, um, uh, or have a revolving tail, as I think you get heard in these movies. It's like it's so obvious. But I love the that right now in 1995, the most sophisticated technology of the day is um, that sort of satellite dish listening device. Like, what what would you call that? <laughs> what would you call that, Dave? It's almost like a super ear. Like, a, it's like a, a hearing a hearing aid like times a- ten. I don't know what it is. It looks like something a bad prop out of Doctor Who or something. It looks <laughs> yeah. completely it's, It does, yeah. I'll, I'll try and get it at the same time as that we're talking, but it's like this, like mini. Um, so you've got obviously Wes Studio with like a telephoto lens, which we see how big yeah. it is, and then you've got Ted Levine with headphones in, and this sort of um, uh, uh, like mini satellite dish that has a microphone in it that can obviously 
is picking up sound from a ridiculously long distance yeah. away. Because when you see them, you know, you can barely... You, know, you can barely hear it. You, well, yeah. you can just barely hear it, but you can barely even see their faces from how far... Like, you, without the telephoto lens, you can't see them how far away <laughs> it is. It's so far away. But I, I just love... I, I still love the tactile nature of having to catch these guys out. And I think it plays so well into that. I love, I love now, especially there's a really cool trend in some of the more modern um, espionage movies, even the Bournes and stuff do it is like going off the grid, you know, like making technology obsolete in the, in these things. You've got to get that spy tradecraft going again. I think Bond did a little bit in Skyfall as well. Um, uh, I guess it, They've got there's a, there's a few mobiles around, isn't there? So, but there's no, apart from that, not much modern tech. No, it's and, and they're like a mobile is like the sophisticated thing. Like Vincent's <laughs> carrying a mobile. You know, Neil Neil doesn't have a mobile. Maybe he doesn't trust them, but he's still using the pay phones and sneaking <laughs> yeah. into the backs of restaurants. But Vincent's like cool enough to have that. But yeah, it's this great and and I, I just you've got to love like Val Kilmer now looks like the like the like the dullard of the group. 26 seconds into the minute as we're frozen onto this the second. <laughs> he looks like the dullard of the group and like Michael looks like really assertive. Like he's like, yeah, yeah, this is like, this is a great plan. And then De Niro's looking at him like not re- not knowing where they're being watched from, but he definitely knows yeah. that they're being watched. And he's sort of like, I need you guys to acknowledge because we're playing here. We're play acting. Yeah, Chris looks like he actually doesn't understand the plan. <laughs> He's like, this is too stupid. I, I mean, if, I mean, if people are listening to this, they're definitely going to know that, you know, they're definitely going to know this isn't our next heist. Um, so, no, it's just a great... And, yeah, this uh, 28 seconds into the scene, 28 seconds mm. into the minute, rather, you can see, like, they are... They're, like, a considerable distance away. They're probably three, 400 metres away on top of a water tower at this, um, you know, wide expanse of a dock with all these shipping containers. That's exactly why they chose that place. You know, they knew that the police could only get so far. So, so yeah, so they couldn't see how, how bewildered Val Kilmer was at play acting (laughs) as Chris Shahillas. He would have blown it all. (laughs) They're like, this doesn't look like a real person's face listening to a plan. Um, Yeah, this is a, yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of time. I've got a lot of time for this minute. Um, Especially because, especially because there's a great sort of contrast in the past minutes as well. So we see when when Hannah and Drucker walk in to get Marciano in the, just the preceding minute. When they walk in, the music's upbeat. Yeah, they're very you know it's very intent. He walks in, you know, uh, Hanger's area playing Marciano like puts his finger in his face. Immediately yeah. the tables are turned there. You know, he turns that scene into, I'm going to get whatever I want out of you. But just yeah. in the exact, and they literally, the cops at about, I'm just going to get exact time code for you guys. It's 45 seconds into this minute. They walk in, in yeah. much, except in, re, in a reverse way, in almost exactly the same way that they do in that other scene. But yeah. it's it's in the absence of music, Dave, that... Yeah that there's none of the intensity. You just sort of go, no. they, these guys don't have it right now. And you're being told yeah. it sort of subtly, but when you go back and rewatch it, you're like, ah, oh, of course. Like th- there's none of those reinforcing points that these guys are on top of it in this moment. Yeah. They look, they don't look confident when they're walking in. I mean, they're trying to look confident, but they're just kind of like struggling in. 
they haven't got a clue. And you can just tell by the way that a few of them are just looking around. But I love the fact that there's just this big open space. Like the, the previous scene was in the op- near little office, and now we're in the like big open plan daylight. It just looks fantastic. <laughs> and yeah, every one of their fa- yeah, 58 seconds into the minute we are, <laughs> and no one's face looks assertive. Like even Vincent, opportunities, <laughs> his mouth's open. You know, Schwartz. Um, uh, uh, is is sort of squinting. Bosco's kind of like, oh, I don't know. I was just listening. I couldn't really see what the hell they were pointing at. And and Casals, where's Judy's characters? Like yeah. they they sort of were looking this way when they po- like he he he. Every everyone's hand gestures in here are like telling things. The first yeah. hand gestures are fake, and the second ones are like they're like pleading with the universe to give me a sign yeah. of why. They would it's be like looking back this way. Five minutes we were on it, and we were getting all what we knew where we were happening, and now we're lost again. You know, we're just being run around. Being run around. God, it's a good minute. There's lots happening. I love the. I love the. Um, another great LA scene here that doesn't look anything like LA. This dock scene, just abandoned. Yeah. It's like another landscape again. Every every place of work here feels completely industrial but also completely abandoned like there's yep. just so threadbare we got all this stuff and there's just no one around there's absolutely no one there you're like where uh, the hell are all the people that put all these containers here where are they um but yeah so but you're far. right there's no music the fact there's no music in the scene as well kind of just completely adds and for for man i mean most of his movies have got so much music going through almost every scene and oh, he's yeah. so obsessed with soundtracks yet here we've got a scene when he doesn't just, just like, got some industrial noise around, and that's kind of it. And it just kind of adds to this. They are literally lost. They, 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 their confidence has been completely shattered in one sweeping move. <laughs> they've, they've, it's almost like they've blown the entire investigation, and they're completely just standing in the middle of nowhere, and out lit- of their zone, li- out of everywhere. You lit- know? Literally standing in the middle of nowhere with nothing. <laughs> Like you couldn't have more nothing than what they have standing there, are in amongst nothing and have nothing. Look, you touched on music, um, mm. and man and Tangerine Dream. Could you talk a little bit about you know you're you're a guy that's clearly obsessed with movie music and Tangerine Dream. The, yes. That uh, I I want to say there's a couple of like there's a couple of ideas, you know that you read about, and you're like oh that's so good. You're just like mm. I can't wait. And your idea for a Tangerine Dream music, um, uh, film music, Tangerine Dream sort of chronicle is such that idea, and I can't wait to read it. So tell me a little bit about because obviously Man uses has used yes. Tangerine Dream. Yeah, he used them for Thief and then uh, the Keep, uh, which you mentioned a little while ago. I mean, the Keep is one of those ones you can't get the film hasn't been seen anywhere since Laserdisc, <laughs> and you can't get the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack came out was a really limited, which cost, if you can find one now, it will cost you hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Uh, but yeah, it's really interesting. He, he's got a love of music, apparently with Thief. Uh, they had a fantastic time on it. Uh, I spoke to Bob Badami, who's uh, been kind of a soundtrack wrangler, is his title. He did it on Thief, The Keep, but also on The Insider and Public Enemies, all for Michael Mann. And he said, yeah, I mean, he said Michael Mann was it just at times he's obviously as he's renowned to be he's quite difficult to work with in terms <laughs> of juggling the band you've got this German band who know exactly what they want to provide and they, they're one of these bands who just give give the director the music 
and then a director goes off and with Thief, apparently they yeah, they literally handed over the music and said to Michael Mann, You can do what you want with it. It wasn't it wasn't fixed to any particular scene. They hadn't recorded for any scenes. They're given the music that they felt was right for the film. Yes. And then he took it and put it where he wanted and re-edited it and re-recorded. Well, didn't re-record some of it. But apparently he played some guitar along with it at some points. But he was very much, he was in charge of it. Uh, whereas The Keep, it was definitely a different approach. And yeah, it sounds, I mean, it's one of those, I mean, have you seen The Keep? I have seen The Keep. I have seen yeah, The Keep. It's an extraordinary film and it kind of, such a bizarre film for Michael Mann to make on one hand, but I mean, it has all these trademark visuals and stuff, but the, the way the soundtrack worked in it was also quite bizarre. There was like cover versions, which Tangerine Dream hadn't really done of these old classic pieces of music, like walking in the air. And it sounds like just everyone was slightly just doing something slightly askew from what they normally did. And it all kind of went a bit haywire. It, it was uh, because as a premise, it sounds super interesting. It sounds like yeah. Michael Mann like leaning into a sci-fi wheelhouse, and it like the ability for it to. Yeah. It's like in you hear it and you go, oh yeah, that movie sounds like it would totally be rad. But yeah. then you yeah. you dig into the lore of the Keep, the lore L O R E, yeah. and it's like the studio had no idea really what they would have to what what they had and nor what they would have to relinquish in terms of control to get what vision they thought they might have been getting out of it which is just not what it was um and man himself and then like as with most as with most films right that in in that era it's like special effects weren't working the way that they intended so then they had to come up with things and reinvent and some movies you get jaws where they're like you know necessity's the mother of invention you figure out a way and to re- go yeah, yeah. you like it reaps the benefits you take the shark out for as much as you possibly can and you you turn people's own imaginations into the most powerful weapon in cinema uh, with you know one of the greatest pieces of movie music ever and you find a way to do it but like the keep they're like, oh no, re-record. We want like a really long sex scene here, and Michael Mann has to like bend to the studio's will and like put a massive gratuitous sex scene in the movie. And you're like, I mean, and that's why he's pretty much disowned it now. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. He he doesn't really want to talk about it. And no, I mean, well, it hasn't come out, you know. Uh, but look, I mean, the whole, I mean, it's fascinating with Tangerine Dream how they did work. I mean, you hear so stories like with Michael Mann, they just deliver the music and See. go and do what you want with it, and he did. And other, other stories of uh, people like uh, Kurt Sabell I talked to, and he was actually the music editor on um, on uh, Risky Business, yes. which is why he worked with Tangerine Dream. But he also then worked on Heat as well on the soundtrack. Yes. And uh, so Kurt went with Paul Brickman and John Avnet, who were the director and producer of Risky Business, and they went to Berlin. And they went into this like old church, which is in Spandau, right next to the, uh, the wall in <laughs> Berlin, and would basically turn up in the morning and Tangerine Dream would go, okay, what do you want? And they'd describe the scenes they wanted and how they wanted it to go. And Tangerine Dream would go, okay, come back tomorrow, this time. And then they wouldn't see the band. And the band would, like, for 24 hours, just record the music. They'd come in, tweak it a little bit, you know, get some more discussions. What do you think of this? Then they'd go, okay, come back tomorrow. And that's all they saw <laughs> of the band. The band never left this church and just kind of were completely focused. And that's all they wanted to do was record the soundtrack. So you always hear all these literally very few people I've spoken to who went over to Berlin to kind of 
collaborate on the soundtrack ever saw the band out of the studio. Never had a coffee with them, out, you know, never walked around Berlin. All they saw them in was in the studio. So how how awesome, really? like, like <laughs> we live in a world where there was a band in like one of the biggest cities in the world mm. um, that was split down the middle between two ideological, like literally split down the middle by a wall that was sort of an ideological wall, both physical and metaphysical. And they're like cooking up music in an old church. And people from Hollywood are flying in. To, like, that even sounds like it's made up. Like, it's so awesome, but it sounds... It's like, no, I don't believe that that actually happened. But it, it did. That's amazing. Oh, it's so funny. But yeah, like... But, the, I, I was going to say, I did speak... I spoke to Kurt about heat uh, briefly. I managed to find the transcriptions. And so he was... Uh, and he's this amazing guy. He's like, work. He worked on Prince movies and like if you look, he's made he's worked on like 150 soundtracks throughout the kind of 70s, 80s, and 90s. So if you look up Kurt Sabell, I mean it's amazing. I know the name. Did. I know the yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Apparently he was like brought in on the Heat after Michael Mann had already gone through three or four music editors, <laughs> and he brought him in to uh, to kind of work on a couple of scenes or three scenes, I think it was. But then he said, no, you can just finish the movie, and it sounds like it was tough, like. Uh, like long nights and you know they had double crews working simultaneously people just sleeping on the sound stage while they're working on one and the other so it sounds like a massive undertaking but then you listen to the soundtrack of heat and the way the soundtrack used in the movie and it's amazing yeah you know? i mean they the the behind the scenes in heat the the famous thing is two completely different editorial teams so you had like dove honig on one team and I, and Pasquale Buber, who I've been lucky enough to talk to on another team. And I think there was two other, two of their other key editors were both, um, uh, both in those teams as well. And we just, and I think they were just doing shifts where they just worked like crazy. And Pat Buber and folks will hear it when I listen, but I, and I'll sort of paraphrase his wife. Um, his wife was complaining to him about his lovely wife was complaining to him about, you know, I haven't seen you in months, like, you know, you know, and, 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 and Pat was, uh, once an actor and an editor had worked a lot with Pacino and had sort of gotten into this editorial crew because he knew Al and Al and Michael had, had a really great relationship. And so they were there and, and he, his, his wife said, I'm only going to be, I'm only, um, going to like be happy if this movie's actually good because you guys have put so much time into it. Um, and he said at the premiere when they, when the film, you know, the final credits rolled, um, you know, she was joking with Michael Mann himself saying, you know, she was going to rouse on him if it wasn't a good film because it took her husband away. Um, and she said to him, no, that's worth it. Like that, that was worth you being away from me. So that that's the kind of ethos that these guys had, like a $60 million movie and also the inflexibility of film at the time. Right. So like, Obviously, it is worth it. It is absolutely gorgeous. But in those, they're shooting on reels and reels and reels of film and then getting into avids and, you know, folks, that's a little bit inside baseball. If you don't know what an avid is, it's just an editorial tool that would like, you'd run the, you'd run the different um, uh, film reels through and that it would sort of just, it's basically, it's basically I, what iMovie is for digital and avid is film. Cool. It's, a, it's pretty, pretty simple editorial tool, but like that's about as quick as you could do it. And, you know, they're processing it. They're getting into these guys in the editorial room. They're just cut, 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 cut. And man's meticulousness, he's just going between teams and telling them what to keep doing. It's just, 
It's crazy. But I mean, so I heard a Tangerine Dream when they were in their church in Berlin. Apparently, you know, the filmmakers used to go over there and deliver the film and they'd just knock up a video version of it. So every single thing they played on their probably sometimes live score in front of the directors to kind of so they could see what they were doing. They had it all. They had had their own version that, you know, they'd knocked out on video. So they were kind of pretty ahead of their time, just trying to kind of simultaneously yeah, editing footage while trying to record and add stuff to it. So it's pretty amazing what they did and how many soundtracks they did around that time. Yes. You know, but then, but people, all the people I speak to always go back. The, the two scores that kind of inspired them to use Tangerine Dream is always William Freakin's Sorcerer and Michael Mann's Thief. They're the two soundtracks which I think really made them the, you know, the, the, the go-to people to do soundtracks. And I mean, both those seventies, but in the eighties, that was when, you know, that, that's when they made it. And also so funny that, um, like Thief had a real cultural impact and then sort of softened. And I think people are now yeah. sort of re rediscovering it. It was like this great re rediscovery. And when drive came out, you know, cause a lot of people were like, Oh, look at this movie. Look how stylish it is. And everyone, everyone had seen Thief is like, yeah, it's great, but it's no Thief. And people are like, what? <laughs> What's Thief? You're like, what is Thief? <laughs> it's like, what is Thief? I'll check that out. Um, but Sorcerer is one that just bubbled as well. Like you talked about with the keep, but Sorcerer because of all the issues, um, mm. sort of bubbled along. And again, Friedkin, a, a great Friedkin movie when Friedkin was making his little purple patch of like incredible yeah. films. Yeah. Um, but, oh, so so brilliant. It's so funny. I was going to say, he heard Tangerine Dream before he made The Exorcist. Oh, no, sorry, just after he made The Exorcist and was like, guys, if I'd heard you before, I would have got you to score The Exorcist. And, <sighs> you know, so that would be pretty amazing. The alternate cuts. The, alter- yeah. the alternate universe when they find that out. But I, but um, uh, you just reminded me, it's like people sort of split Michael Mann's work mm. um, in between sort of his classical mode and then sort of some people sort of call it loosely his like experimental digital mode, like getting more and more, I wouldn't say avant-garde, but like pairing back you know, um, elements of the story, making things more elemental, also using digital photography, like more experimental shots, um, uh, just a, a whole bunch of just like stripping layers back and back, back, back in all of his more recent films. And I, besides aesthetic, man as a filmmaker must just lean into digital so much more because when you hear about stories of the ferocity like of making heat and the pressure to get it out at the time they need to get it out. It's like how inflexible that would have been with film. That just doesn't exist now. You can like be cutting. If you've got a guy like Dove Honig or someone who's a huge editor, like a phenomenal editor like Dove Honig, he can be cutting the entire time you're shooting. He can have yeah. rushes every day. You can have yeah. like a, you can have like an assembly cut like a day after the movie finishes shooting. If you've got the editing yeah. team working the whole way, because there's no processing time. It's just dumping hard drives into editing suites and they can just cut scene for scene every yeah. day um, and just go, we like scene 11, we like take 11 here, we like take three here, we like take one here and just go and it just gets assembled and then they can go back and have a watch of it. You know, you hear about it more, you know, Steven Soderbergh and I think Kevin yeah. Smith, who I love, I think Kevin Smith at his rap party showed a cut of one of his movies because he was editing it the whole time that the movie was running. He would just go in and go, yeah, I like take three, I like take 11, I'm going to put an assembly cut together. And on digital, you can do that. It's crazy. Like it's like unheard of in 95 when you've got, you know, 
when you've killed four editors and <laughs> you've eliminated four music supervisors because they can't wrangle the scenes right, you know, it's crazy. It is, but yeah, oh, but Thief, I think you're right, completely. And, and sorry, I said it was 70s, it's 81 Thief came out. But yeah, yeah it's definitely one of those that like, I didn't discover it till years after, after the event. You know, I heard people talking about it, like you said. But yeah, it's, certain films like that need... Film, you just need one filmmaker to be influenced by it and it kind of spirals and the opinion of it changed. But, I mean, you just watch it now and so many scenes kind of parallel stuff that's happening in, in Heat as well. Yeah. And all of man's crime thrillers, it's kind of the template for a lot of those. But, yeah. so, I mean, and it was fantastic and the score obviously was wonderful. And it's just, yeah, you you wish a lot more people out there. That's I think that's one of man's films you wish more people would see. Yeah, and also you get... Um... What I'm really loving is uh, it's sort of overdone a little bit. There's like retro programming, but there's some yeah. really good places, especially in Sydney, like where we both are now. Um, they do, I think they do a little bit better in Melbourne. And one of our upcoming guests on One Heat Minute, I think is one of the best at it, um, um, Zach Hepburn, um, who works uh, for the, who works for yeah. the Aster, um, who, I mean, those guys program the living daylights out of like just amazing retro films and different prints, you know, a lot of 35 mil, 70 mil, not just, and beautiful 4K restorations and things like that. But that's one that a couple of my friends hadn't seen Thief and it was at a recent yeah. restoration. I'm like, you no, go. Like, you need to see. If you've never seen it before, there's never a better time than to go catch it on the big screen because mm. that's where yeah. you can crank that incredible soundtrack and it just ble- it's oh, it's it, it's so good and it's it's very it's thoroughly beautiful, like a thoroughly beautiful film and and um, so much style. There's a great scene in Thief. It's like one of the it's one of the Christopher Nolan loves Michael Mann scene so much that he rips off an exact shot and takes it into a later movie where James Kahn is like tied up by um, the crooks. And I can't remember his name for the life of me right now. I'm going to do some Googling while we're talking, but he's tied up by the crooks and the camera follows the, the, the head crook and it goes upside down. So he's talking to him and his head yeah. is completely upside down. And it's like, the exact shot that is in the end that is in the closure um, of the Dark Knight. So it's just like this beautiful shot um, where it's upside down, and you, it was like a shot that you just never saw again. Um, it no. was super disorientating. You're like, wow, this is like incredible. I will get this actor's name because it's going to drive everyone. Bug- people, people, people are um, Robert Prosky playing oh, yes. Leo. Yeah, and and. In the last action hero, he's like this absolutely gorgeous sweetie pie dude who gives uh, the little kid the the magic ticket from who, Harry Houdini. But in in Thief, he's a cold bastard, um, <laughs> and so oh, he's also in Mrs. Doubtfire, also as a sweetie pie. But in Thief, a cold bastard. So if you get a chance <laughs> to revisit, that's one of those things. I think- but he he, I mean, we talk about he. I was gonna say he as well. Seeing it on a cinema. It's such a different experience from seeing it, you know, on the on the. On, you know, I mean, we've all got big TVs now, but just seeing it in a cinema. I mean, that's a film that I think the Astor show it fairly regularly. I think. Yeah, uh, they did. They did. A, they did a recent run when there was the American Essentials Film Festival. It played, I think, at the oh, yeah. Astor, um, and it did play in Sydney um, as well. It played at Palace Central in Sydney, and I was there. It was the first time I'd seen Heat on the big screen. Nice. Beautiful 4K print. One thing that does play, though, 
like you said, is there's nothing like seeing it on the big screen, but there's also nothing like seeing it with an audience on the big screen. It's a funnier, yeah. it's a funnier film in parts with an audience because you laugh at, like people laugh at Pacino. They just love, <laughs> they love Vincent. They love when Vincent, even little things, they love Vincent. Like my, my favorite laugh of Vincent in the movie is not any of the, like the famous ones, the great artists and that. It's where he picks up his phone and I probably repeated on the podcast. So for guys who've listened to every episode, I'm sorry if I've repeated this so many times, but it's just my favorite. It's he picks up his phone and Casals goes, you know, you know, tell me Tarina called back. No, yeah, no, Tarina didn't call back. Okay, cool. We'll go to them tomorrow. And he's like, yeah. Oh, and Vincent, by the way, the, you know, um, the, the demolition charge was two thing, Mm. you know, can't trace it. And he goes, oh, that's wonderful. And he just hangs up the phone. Like that scene in the cinema, people just cack themselves. And I was like, and I was one of them. And I was like, that is, that's so funny. You just want to be that kind of guy who can hang up on your friends or your work colleagues without even saying anything. They just say something you don't like, just hang the phone up. Just like straight, go, oh, that's wonderful. Hang the phone up. Um, but yeah, no, it plays it. But it's also incredibly tense like you are really grateful like at home you know with everything you know as a dad like i'm a dad there's a there's an infinite amount of distractions when you're trying to really dive into a movie but when you're in when you're in the thick of heat it is extremely tense extremely Mm. tense and the soundtrack is extremely tense tension inducing as well um and what's so cool is you know you're a guy that's writing about incredible soundtracks and so powerfully pronounced when a soundtrack completely drops out of the film. Like, what is a really good soundtrack? <laughs> the, the, the one scene that we've talked about is the scene that they just drop the music out um, completely. You know, it's, it's, it makes a massive difference to what you're feeling. But when the music does swell yeah. in, the, in, the, in the subsequent scene... Yeah, exactly. It's when, like... When they realise, I think the soundtrack starts swelling up and up, you're fine. It's like... It is exactly that. The sound, the the soundtrack is like a dawn. It is like the sun rising and being illuminated in Vincent's brain in the next minute. Where he's like, "Ah, oh, I know what they're looking at. I know what they're looking at." It's so great. It's so excellent. Oh, look, Dave. I think that's a perfect way for us to end. Um, this is this has been uh, one heat minute. Thank you to David Michael Brown. Dave, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Guys, as I said, um, the latest, uh, and and it should be around the time that this episode is released, the latest um, uh, release of the Empire magazine has come out with four different covers, and Dave has about 40, seemingly, 40 different pieces (laughs) that are in this issue. So he's got lots of stuff happening. Um, I'll keep you guys posted around Wavelength as well. I'll make sure I tweet it out and things like that um, once we get the release dates and everything for that. So, Dave, thank you for giving us some insights there and some behind-the-scenes Michael Mann stuff. We love that on One Hit Minute. Um, So thank you so much for being a part of the show and thanks for coming on. Um, Thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme tune. Um, And as always, thank you guys. Please subscribe, rate, review. We're all over the place, Spotify, Wooshka, Google Podcasts, iTunes, oneheatminute.com. I've been Blake Howard, and we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute around the corner.